with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning. Welcome to the Monday edition of After 9 uh, with your host, Stuart Parker. Uh, today, we're going to be getting into the UK election. Our uh, friends and uh parent country, the United Kingdom, is going into an election. Uh, People are voting. Some have already voted. And uh, in today's show, we're going to try and give you a little extra information to help understand what has become a very, very confusing thing going on in the United Kingdom. Uh, Of course, the background to all this is the uh, 2016 referendum in which Britons decided to leave the European Union. Uh, This was an unexpected referendum. Some people felt it presaged the Trump election uh, because virtually all of the mainstream opinion leaders in the media, in finance, and in politics had advised people to vote to remain in the European Union during the so-called Brexit vote. And yet the people of Great Britain and Northern Ireland voted 52% to leave the European Union. Uh, Following that, David Cameron, the prime minister, was forced to step down and was replaced with Theresa May, who, while she'd campaigned to remain in the European Union, uh, promised to lead the country out. Now, David Cameron was a conservative prime minister. Theresa May was the next leader of the Conservative Party, and Theresa May attempted to negotiate with the European Union for favorable terms to exit it. But her hands in many ways were tied because when she was elected prime minister in 2017, Uh, She was not elected to a majority government. She required the support of a small political party in Northern Ireland, which received 0.9% of the vote, called the Democratic Unionist Party. This is a party whose raison d'etre is to uh, maintain British Protestant rule in Northern Ireland and prevent the gradual integration of Northern Ireland into Ireland that has been going on since the 1990s and the so-called Good Friday Agreement. For this reason, and others, Theresa May was unable to reach a deal with the European Union to maintain a certain level of free trade and to comply with both the Good Friday Agreement and the Democratic Unionist Party that effectively wants to sabotage that agreement. So, a new leadership election was held, and Boris Johnson, with a ball was passed to him. Uh, Boris Johnson had been a lead spokesperson for leaving the European Union. And the reason that he got the leadership was because a new party called the Brexit Party had appeared early this year, led by Nigel Farage, former leader of the UK Independence Party. And Farage had won 15% of the popular vote in the Euro Parliament elections 
And in the municipal elections, his party was decimating the Conservative Party. So the Conservative Party went from taking a partial exit position or a soft Brexit position to selecting a leader who favored what we call hard Brexit, which involves leaving the European Union in its entirety, even if that might mean redrawing the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. Well, negotiations have moved along, and uh, because Boris Johnson was so unpopular with more moderate members of his party on Brexit, enough members of parliament crossed the floor and became independents so that Boris Johnson no longer had, even with the Democratic Unionists, enough votes for a majority in parliament. And so his government has fallen. Up against Boris Johnson's conservatives, are Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party and Joe Swinson's Liberal Democratic Party. Those are the main contestants in most of the country. But a few words about the rest of the country. In Northern Ireland, the main parties in um, the rest of uh, the UK don't run there. There are different parties that run there. Sinn Féin, who favor merging with Ireland, the Democratic Unionists who favor recreating the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland, something they'll get with a hard Brexit. Sinn Féin members, although they often win about a third of the seats, never occupy those seats. They refuse to sit in Parliament in Westminster. Now, in Scotland, the main parties, all the main parties run there, but the territory has become dominated by the Scottish National Party, a party that uh, might remind us of the Bloc Québécois here in Canada. They seem hipper than the rest of Britain, better educated, more sophisticated, and want done with the rest of the country. Uh, and in Wales, we have a similar situation, a regional party called Plaid Cymru, uh, takes um, about a quarter of the seats in Wales uh, on, again, a separatist agenda. But in England itself, it's an interesting set of choices. The Brexit party's vote has collapsed since Boris Johnson was selected. And so now Boris Johnson and his party are saying this election is a referendum, a second referendum on Brexit, Vote for us and you get to leave the European Union. Joe Swinson of the Liberal Democratic Party, a party that used to be in coalition with the Conservatives, is running on the campaign. This is a second Brexit referendum. Vote for us and we will stop Brexit. We will overturn the results of the referendum if we get enough seats in Parliament. Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party are saying something different. They're saying, this election is a vote on austerity. Whether we leave the European Union or stay in the European Union, we, our agenda is about nationalizing public services, ending privatization, uh, ending contracting out, eliminating tuition fees, restoring people's right to housing that was taken away in the 1990s. And 
Many people have questioned whether a party that is split on Brexit, as is the Labour Party, whether that party can survive in this environment. Well, we're down to the wire. Labour's in the mid-30s. The Tories are in the low 40s. Likely how the separatists do in Wales, Northern Ireland, and Scotland may determine whether this is a hung parliament and a minority government. And it's extra nutty because, of course, this election is taking place under Canada's voting system, the one we inherited from Britain, the one that was designed by the best mathematical minds that England in 1215 could find, the first-past-the-post voting system. And that means that it's just a matter of who's first across the line in each riding, the national popular vote doesn't matter all that much. So on today's program, we're going to be talking with uh, Anthony Dunn. Uh, he's a um, uh, an actor. A uh, I met him in the PhD program at the University of Toronto. He's a historian, and um, he's a long-term watcher and commentator on British politics. Uh, after uh, Tony, we'll have uh, Malcolm Colclue. Uh Malcolm's a Canadian, married to a uh, British woman who was born in Ghana. Uh, and uh, he is um, currently uh, doing his doctorate through the University of uh, Tulane in New Orleans. Um, he's a political scientist and historian, and he'll be offering some commentary on uh, the election as well. So I hope this helps to uh, take you into the UK election and be a bit more of a sophisticated observer uh, while you're eating the popcorn and watching the UK have a clearly more unpleasant and ridiculous election than the one we just had. Joining me from Central London uh, in the Electoral District of Battersea is a longtime political observer and uh, historian and actor, uh, Anthony Dunn. Uh, Battersea is one of the swing ridings in London uh, that will determine the outcome of uh, this UK parliamentary election. So um, tell me, um, who are the parties that are in contention in the riding, and uh, what's their story? Who's there? Who are their supporters, and uh, what's the campaign on the ground? Well, here in Battersea, uh, hello, yeah. by the way, uh, hello to everybody in uh, Prince George. Uh, anyway, I only really know the Labour candidate. The, the, the only people in contention here... Uh, would be the Tories and Labour. And the lady who is the MP here, Marsha de Cordoba, is a Labour MP, and she was elected for the first time in many years a Labour MP had been elected here uh, because normally the Conservative Party uh, get in. Uh, I have voted for Marsha, um, and the two main parties then are Labour and Conservative uh, I don't even know the name of the Conservative candidate, I have to be honest. I'm not a mad fanatical uh, politics man, as you know, but in this case, Marsha has been an excellent MP, so I've voted for her. And also, by implication, I'm voting for Jeremy Corbyn. 
So uh, when we were talking about, uh, when I was setting this up, I was talking about how it's been the agenda of the Conservative Party to sell this uh, election as a Brexit referendum, as a second referendum where they're laying claim to everybody who voted to leave the European Union and saying that they're the party that can get that done. Now, is... um, is Labour a Remain party, or how is it handling that narration of the election? Well, I, the thing is, of course, it's being framed in a particular way. And in this case, it's being framed in a party political way. But actually, in reality, the complex reality within which we all live, uh, that isn't correct, because there are plenty of people in the Labour Party who want to remain, the progressive, the Blairite section, but there are also a number of what you would call old left, the old Labour Party from the 1970s and the early 1980s, who would leave. So just like the Conservative Party, just like everybody else, there are numerous people who disagree with each other within the same party. So, um, uh, so what's the uh, many people looking in from abroad are are uh, are given the impression that if you are not a racist and you are um, a person who embraces a cosmopolitan society um you must have voted to remain in the european union but um you're describing jeremy corbyn's base uh, which was certainly an anti-racist base, the old Labour left, um, as containing a lot of leavers. Why would someone want to leave the European Union if they liked living in a cosmopolitan society? Well, again, you see, the difficulty is that mainstream media frame things in particular ways. Uh, nowadays, as you know, uh, most things are reduced to infantile playground arguments. So, of course, you're on the one hand, you know, if you do this, then you'll be virtuous. If you do X, Y and Z, then you won't be. But of course, it's nonsense because as in many countries in Europe, it's the same in Canada, the United States, this all goes back to the deindustrialization of the 1980s, doesn't it? When lots of people were left behind by globalization, lots of people did well out of it. So, of course, that is the bigger context that we're talking about. So many people who used to be natural labor voters in the old industrial heartlands, and for that matter in Scotland, which of course is now run by the Scottish National Party, um, in all these areas, of course, you had people who were affiliated to the old Labour Party. But as the new Blairite progressive Labour Party has taken over, many of these people have been disillusioned, many of them have been disfranchised, uh, they feel abandoned. So, of course, many of those people, as well as old-style conservative people, voted to leave. It wasn't a party political uh, thing, uh, if I'm making sense so far. You're absolutely making sense. And, uh, of course, you worked in a factory uh, growing up in the north um, and uh, were, uh, you know, came out of this English working class who were Eurosceptics. And um, I think a lot of people fail to realize that almost none of Jeremy Corbyn's platform could even be implemented 
uh, unless you either leave the European Union or uh, you uh, or you get the European Union to rewrite its charter. That there it is in the Maastricht Treaty saying you can't renationalize British Rail. Uh, you are absolutely correct, and I was listening. I don't know if you've heard of Maurice Glassman. Uh, Not at all. He's a peer. Uh, he's a Labour. He's Jew Jewish, and he's a Labour, a Jewish Labour peer. There we are, uh, an intellectual, uh, and he's a similar age to me, uh, almost the same age, in fact. And he was only talking the other day about this because, of course, what he was talking about. You, you, Again, I, I hesitate if it sounds confusing. It's difficult to uh, condense all this information. But he was talking about a similar thing that I just mentioned. In other words, that the UK, just like many other countries since deindustrialization, there's been a disintegration and there's been new technology and some people have done well out of it. Morris Glassman was talking about this very thing because he was talking about how the Labour Party formed itself, the deal after the Second World War, and the disillusion since the 1980s, um, how the society's become fragmented. He has uh, started up a new, not new uh, political party, but part of the Labour Party. He calls it Blue Labour. He calls it Labour for the people who used to be known as working class, who worked in factories, who had mutual understandings, cooperatives, banks, social clubs, in other words, whole communities that thrived and lived because they were connected to the factories or the industry uh, that they worked with who have been broken up. And he is one person who, again, is a leave person uh, who is talking about these uh, people. Uh, and he is talking about we need to find ways to reinvent communities to get this love he talks about, comradeship, you know, to stop the disintegration that's happened. I'm sorry, I've, I think I've lost track of your question, but it's... I don't think it matters particularly because it leads us to a really important um, parallel between the collapse of uh, old labor in Britain and the collapse of the New Democrats as a socialist party here in British Columbia. Um, all over British Columbia, there used to be something called Commonwealth societies that were technically outside the NDP, but lent the NDP money, ran credit unions, ran charities, ran picnics, put together bingo, all this stuff. And um, in uh, when our Blairites took over before yours in the early 1990s, there was a small scandal at one of these Commonwealth societies and the party took that as an opportunity to shut down every Commonwealth society in British Columbia. So I think it's very much on point to, uh, to talk about these kinds of institutions that used to include and be based on working class people. Now, you also mentioned, however, the ethnicity of this member of the House of Lords. So we're going we're gonna to go through, and we're going to come back to um, this question, this thing that's being sold, not just in your media, but all over the world. If I read a story about Jeremy Corbyn, whether it's in Haaretz in uh, Jerusalem, whether it's in the Vancouver Sun, whether it's in the Washington Post, the term we hear referring to Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semite. 
So um, we're going to go to break, and when we come back, we'll talk about these allegations of anti-Semitism against old labor. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. So we're back with um, Anthony Dunn, um, historian, actor, and uh, former factory worker. Before we move on to these uh, anti-Semitism allegations against Jeremy Corbyn, I want to say a bit more about what um, what things were like uh, growing up in industrial England before the deindustrialization and globalization. Now, in Norfolk, how would you plug into this larger labor culture? <laughs> well, uh, Norfolk, funnily enough, is a rural county. It's quite a Tory county. But, 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 but just to briefly explain how that worked, there was what was called the London overspill in the 1960s, uh, where London became even more populated than it is now. And many, many factories moved to rural locations. to And so people who traditionally had worked on the land then came to work in industry. Many skilled people came out of London, came to live in the country, and there were apprenticeship schemes and so on. To try and give you a picture of the world I'm talking about, I went to Ruskin College in Oxford, and there I mixed with people from Liverpool, from Glasgow, from Yorkshire, from mining towns. And so to look at what I've just spoken about in the country and in those traditionally industrial regions, what I'm trying to paint a picture here of a whole world, completely different. The past is another country. Um, I know we can't go back, but 30 or 40 years ago, you had football leagues, different factories had football teams. Every factory had a club, a local community club. So people interacted with each other in numerous ways. Uh, You know, it wasn't always peaceful, but you get what I mean. There was a, a whole world set up. There was an apprenticeship system. So that anybody, even if they left school without qualifications, they had jobs. There were jobs there. You could be a carpenter, a bricklayer, a welder, an engineer, a toolmaker. There was a whole system that had been in place for decades and decades of vocational training. So young people didn't have to think, well, I have to go to university when they're not academically um, suited to academic work. They're engineers or bricklayers and so on. But before I start... uh, giving a whole sermon, I I think you get the idea. So uh, there was a whole different world there in place with a whole system of vocational training and work for people that wanted it. Yes, really, it's quite amazing now that we live in a world where essentially you pay to acquire the skills that a company then gets from you. The idea that a company wouldn't pay to train its own workers um, through something like apprenticeship would have been a strange one. And so when Jeremy Corbyn talks about ending university fees um, and vocational training fees, it really does point back to um, this different social contract where because companies benefited from people's skills, they paid for them to acquire those skills. Well, I, you know, look, Stuart, I mean, just because we're, I mean, I'm aware of time and the clock's ticking, but, you know, 
people had people left school at 16 but they had apprenticeships they went to i mean i went i had started as an apprentice toolmaker i was on the shop floor at 16 but one day a week i was sent to college to learn all kinds of different engineering skills i mean there were numerous trades being taught at college there it's i don't know about the system in canada but here um, it was only really uh, a way, you know, because what are you going to do with all those young people when you've deindustrialized? All those people who took up that vocational training, what are you going to do with them? Well, of course, then they started this idea that everyone has to go to university and the whole tuition fees and all this kind of thing started. But of course, that was in a way trying to resolve a problem of uh, civil. Uh, civil proportions, civil uh, disturbance, because of course you had all these young people who would have normally been working in factories, working towards a trade, having stability, the ability to get married, and so on and so forth. Suddenly they had nothing to do. So this whole idea of universities, where it used to be about 10% of the population, suddenly everybody had to go to university. Of course, a lot of people, but, you know, they're not really interested or they're not cut out to be academics, you know. So um, so let's move on to the yeah. main narrative about uh, Corbyn. So um, this accusation of anti-Semitism, help us to understand why it's being made, who's making it, um, how all that works. Well, I, I, I would take my information, and again, I'm, I, I mean, I'm not a coward, but uh, I'm covering myself here. Many people who disagree with this, idea, you know, the whole thing, it seems, is manufactured. There are, there are, the other thing that you haven't mentioned is it's either anti-Semitism within the Labour Party or they ally Corbyn with Stalin and so on and the old Soviet regime. So there's right. a, a two-pronged attack where if you vote for him, uh, you know, there was a joke in private eye the other week, if you vote, you know, something like if you vote for Corbyn, he's going to replace Nelson's column in Trafalgar Square with an inflatable Stalin. Uh, so there's that association they're trying to use. The other one, uh, the information I get from, uh, I could, who is the gentleman that uh, who wrote about Nate Silver, Chris somebody? Sam, oh, Sam Chris. Jewish writer. He's written a brilliant article last month about, you know, the war against the Jews. And he's basically saying, you know, here I am. I'm Jewish. You know, I know loads of my Jewish friends. And, we, you know, this stuff is being manufactured. It's just not true. Uh, then uh, Morris Glassman, again, in fact, you know, the same sort of people, uh, Jewish people, Jewish intellectuals who are left leaning are saying that this stuff is is made up. I mean, the idea is that you, you, you want to associate Jeremy Corbyn with anti-Semitism and uh, old-style dictatorial communism. Uh, circa 1984, you know, uh, George Orwell's uh, uh, parody on about uh, Stalinism. So you've got this two-pronged attack, uh, and it seems to be working, obviously. If you're hearing about it every year, it's obviously working. And it's, it really sticks in the crawl because Alastair Campbell, who used to be you know, Tony Blair's spin doctor, to, to try and be brief, uh, he was interviewing John Burkow. And now the interview is online. It's about an hour long. Uh, and John Burkow was the Speaker of the House of Commons. He's the outgoing Speaker of the House of Commons. He's a Tory, uh, but he became neutral uh, because he became the Speaker. And he also happens to be Jewish. 
and Alastair Campbell was interviewing him. And as they kept towards the end of the interview, Alastair Campbell, uh, very sneakily in my opinion, started to, well, what, what must it be like for you, John, with this anti-Semitism of Jeremy Corbyn and so on, trying to get him, of course, to talk about Jeremy Corbyn. And, of course, it didn't really work because John Burkow behaved absolutely professionally. Uh, and he said, look, I've known Jeremy Corbyn for decades and I've never sniffed a whiff of anti-Semitism. In fact, we're on opposite sides in terms of our political parties. I'm paraphrasing it. He said, but, you know, this is a man who's campaigned all his life against war, against racism, against prejudice of any kind. So, uh, again, I don't want to sound, I'm not a worker for Jeremy Corbyn or anything, but it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It's what mainstream media do. You know, they start a story, it snowballs, and then everybody says it's the truth. And the next thing, you've got people like John McDonnell, the shadow chancellor yesterday, and, you know, large parts of the interview are, are people attacking him, trying to defend anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. I have many, many friends who just happen to be Jewish, and of course they're not on that side of it, things at all. So I'm assuming this is part of something to do with the way uh, markets, the way the market is uh, taking over people's lives and the people who want to pursue that ideology. Uh, well, the last thing they would want in power, the last thing those corporations would want anywhere near power is someone like Jeremy Corbyn. So uh, the two-pronged attack is we'll either get Stalinist Russia or there'll be pogroms, uh, neither of which I believe to be true at all. All right. Well, I think that's a strong note to go out on. We'll be um, watching uh, this election very carefully, and in particular, we'll be watching the returns coming in from Battersea. Um, Perhaps, actually, if you could just give us five more minutes after this next break, want to come back a little bit to why Battersea is uh, going to be such a key battleground. Thank you for tuning in and staying tuned to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. On the line from Battersea once again, uh, I have uh, Malcolm Colclew, a... Uh, uh, Canadian uh, resident of, uh, of the UK, uh, Fulbright uh, doctoral candidate at Tulane University in uh, New Orleans. So a person with a very broad experience of politics uh, in uh, the English-speaking world. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So... Um, you're in Battersea, one of these battleground ridings in uh, Greater London that's going to decide the election. Um, but you've also got a wider optic, having been involved in uh, left politics in Canada and the United States as well. Um, going into this election, uh, a big issue uh, has been a question of how to narrate it. On the one hand... Um, it could be narrated as an election about Brexit, and on the other hand, it could be narrated as an election about austerity. And uh, an interesting thing happened uh, last week. Joe Swinson, leader of the most anti-Brexit party, the Liberal Democrats, issued a public apology for her party's 
participation in austerity. What's going on there? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think she's, she's been uh, confronted by her own record, and the record of the Liberal Democrats. It's a, it's a particular sore spot for me because uh, when I first came to the UK in 2006, uh, I was looking around for uh, like-minded people, and I I uh, got involved in the Liberal Democrats for a brief period uh, because uh, they claimed to be social democrats, and so you know I related that back home to the NDP and the Socialist Party in the in the United States. So uh, naturally, I, I gravitated towards them, and I was involved and and campaigned with them uh, in the lead up to the uh, 2010 election. And so I, like many other people who had been involved in the Liberal Democrats felt, uh, you know, particularly betrayed when uh, Nick Clegg and, and the Lib Dems got into bed with the Tories, basically. So, uh, but and they became charged with the with the Tory brush, which, as you know, was the, the, the beginning of austerity, a, a, a really oppressive uh, period of austerity here in the United Kingdom. And so... I guess she was confronted by her record and felt that she had to had to come clean. It was better to come clean. So I, I suppose she gets points for that. But at the same time, uh, you know, she did what she did, and it's, the consequences have been pretty heavy on the working people in this country. So both the Tories and the Liberal Democrats have wanted this election to be about Brexit because they are the parties with the clearest positions other than the regional parties like Plaid Cymru or the Scottish Nationalists. And uh, so uh, it's very clear that a vote for the Liberal Democrats is a vote to remain, a vote for uh, the Tories is a vote to leave, uh, whereas... The Labour Party um, doesn't seem to be playing ball with that. Uh, so how would you describe... Uh, so Labour seems to be saying this is a vote for or against austerity. Now in London, uh, 40% of the population voted leave. And um, which party they come down for is obviously going to decide a seat like yours. So... Um, why hasn't Labour taken a clear position on whether to leave or remain? Well, uh, I, I think it, it's my belief that it has something to do with uh, with the... Uh, I think there was some ambivalence from the very beginning. I think the leader of the Labour Party, uh, um, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, felt that uh, he had some ambivalence about uh, leave because I, I think he believed that... Uh, that if they were to form government, they would have a freer hand to build socialism here outside of uh, the European Union. At least I've heard that, heard some people say that. And, uh, but, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of people in the Labour Party who also voted for, uh, for Leaf, who were taken in by the, by the campaign, uh, the Leaf campaign and, and, uh, people who, uh, thought that they were voting for the things that they were promised and, and who had some um, anti-immigrant sentiment. And, uh, and so I think that they were um, chagrined to lose the support of those voters, understanding that it was a divisive issue within the party. 
so um, uh, so some people are narrating this as uh, if you're pro austerity. Uh, vote for any of the other parties if you're anti-austerity, vote Labour. Some people are narrating the election as if you're pro-Brexit, vote Tory. If you're anti-Brexit, vote for one of the other parties. Uh, and then there's this third element that we're getting in the media, uh, especially on this side of the Atlantic and in the Middle East, which is that um, uh, this claim that uh, labor is now an anti-Semitic party and uh, that if you oppose anti-Semitism, you need to vote Tory. What do you make of that claim? Uh, I think I think it's I think it's bogus. I think uh, I, I'm not really sure I understand why it, labor has been at such great pains to uh, to negate that to to speak to that issue because uh, there are, of course, anti-Semites in, in, uh, in all of the parties and, and Labour's quick to point that out. Uh, but, you know, they particularly, you know, there has been in the Zionist community here, uh, the organized Zionist community here, there's been some hostility towards Labour Party and towards Jeremy Corbyn in particular. And it's unfounded. I think what I, what I make of it is that I think it's absolutely unfounded. Yes, there are, are is going to be that element in every party, but uh, it's it's quite a small number. And I think that uh, I think that they have been fairly uh, quick to deal with it. Although you know, they, there are many people who say that that's not true. That they haven't moved fast enough. Uh, I don't know. Perhaps it's this clumsiness on their part, but. You know, I mean, certainly I think it's mis it's a mi misplaced epithet because Jeremy, especially when it comes to the leader, Jeremy Corbyn has been, Corbyn has been fighting racism his whole life. And, uh, you know, he has the support of, of you know, some quite well-known uh, anti-Zionist Jews, such as uh, uh, Noam Chomsky and others internationally. So I think it's an unfounded charge, but it's, seem to have plagued them, and I think it has something to do with the uh, the willingness of the right-wing press here to to uh, jump on that bandwagon and to to champion that charge. And I think you make a good sense? point here that you use the term Zionist, that ultimately yeah. um, people who are Zionists believe that all people who oppose Zionism are anti-Semites. And many Jewish people, of course, are not Zionists, or even if they are Zionists, they don't support the current Israeli government. But I think for Corbyn critics like David Hirsch uh, or Terry Glavin, if you don't support Likud, um, the incredibly corrupt right-wing party that gets less than 30% of the popular vote in Israel, you are an anti-Semite. And there's that elision of anti-Semitism is conflated with anti-Zionism, and then all anti-Likud ideas, even within the Zionist community, are called anti-Semitism. And you end up with 70% of the population of Israel being, by this definition, anti-Semites. That's right. So, uh, and, and, and the very people who call out the uh, uh, 
you know, anybody who refers, who's anti-Zionist, including anti-Zionist Jews within Israel itself, organizations like Peace, Peace Now and others, uh, anybody who, uh, the ones that who are decrying anti-Semitism within the Labor Party, you don't hear them uh, making similar claims about the, uh, you know, the anti-Arab movement within the within the Latud community in, in Israel, and and uh, you know those kinds of charges, the anti-Islamophobia uh, here. You know, you don't hear those people sort of, you know, making statements about that. It's only about uh, the anti-Semitism allegedly within the Labour Party. So. All right, now so, we need yeah. to go to a quick uh, commercial break, and uh, when we come back, we'll drill down a little more into um, the failure of the climate issue to make it onto the radar in this election. This is After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. Uh, we're back with Malcolm on the line from Battersea in London, and uh, I understand you did a bit of homework for this interview you um many people have been surprised by how little traction climate change has had in this election we've seen the green party enter the election with eight percent and fall to two percent and we see major debates going by where climate's not being discussed so in an effort to in some ways remedy this uh you gave uh extinction rebellion which is big organization in england more so than here a call and asked for their take. So what did they have to say? Well, basically what their position was is they didn't want to come out and say that they were necessarily embracing one party over another because they wanted to uh, you know, uh, maintain their image as being uh, nonpartisan as much as possible. Nevertheless, they're very quick to point out that uh, that they have, they have lobbied all of the parties and... Uh, um, the basically the Tories, the as far as uh, uh, their support for um, the the party's uh, approach to the climate crisis that we're facing globally, uh, the Tory party and the the Conservative party and the and the Brexit party were you know have done absolutely nothing to address the issues, uh, this important issue and the crisis that we're all facing. Uh, as far as the Liberal Democrats is concerned, uh, they said that they have done, they have uh, a somewhat uh, progressive approach, uh, insufficient, they say they've, you know, essentially what they're, uh, they're calling for is um, uh, a, um, an, the party to embrace their, uh, uh, their climate crisis uh, policy, which is called the the three promises. Just let me see if I can find what they what the, what those involve. Um, just put that in here. So, um, so essentially, uh, Extinction Rebellion is trying to achieve some kind of cross-partisan consensus. But I note that um, the Tory Party did begin the election by banning fracking of natural gas. Now. This is striking, given that there's now a cross-partisan consensus in the UK to ban fracking, when we consider that um, the last two provincial budgets in British Columbia um, 
have uh, supported uh, fracking subsidies, and both the Green Party and NDP voted those budgets through. And prior to that, the fracking subsidies were voted through by the other party in this province, again, um, giving out massive fracking subsidies. Um, at the national level in Canada, we see the same thing. Um, we see a cross-partisan consensus in favor of uh, fracking and um, expanding uh, our use of petroleum. Uh, and yet in the UK, we see instead a cross-partisan consensus saying we can no longer permit fracking here. Um What's going on there? Is that Extinction Rebellion making a difference? Uh, it, it's possible. There have been some earthquakes that have been caused here. There have been, and you know, this is not a place that's known. It's not an earthquake zone, uh, but there have been some earthquakes that uh, have been registered that they've attributed to some of the fracking that's taken place here. So perhaps that has something to do with it. Uh, but uh, there does seem to be a consensus among the parties. But as far as other approaches are concerned, it's fairly clear that there's a clear demarcation between the Tories and the Brexit Party on the one hand and the Lib Dems and Labour. Now, when I spoke to them, they said that uh, there's two things that we talked about. They said that, uh, uh, first of all, Labour, uh, although they don't endorse any particular party, as I've already said, they said that Labour probably has had the most progressive targets in terms of uh, carbon zero emissions and, the, and their targets, uh, which they originally said uh, that they were prepared to work towards zero carbon emissions by 2030. This is what Labour was hoping to do. Uh, they've since walked that back a bit because of they say they're at, they, they need to attend to issues such as jobs and, and economic growth. Uh, but uh, they have. They still have a more progressive approach to zero carbon emission than uh, the two conservative parties, and and the the Lib Dems have committed to. They say that it's a realistic goal, uh, but it's which is zero carbon emissions by 2045, which from the perspective of extinction rebellion, that's just that you know it's it's too late and. Uh, so they're basically, although they say that they they don't have uh, a, a party preference, it's, it's clear from their perspective that more more progressive uh, approach is being taken by Labour. Now the other thing that we talked about, and I'll try to keep this brief as possible because I know we're running out of time, uh, was that um, they talked about the fact that there is in fact a hunger strike that's going on. As a matter of fact, in in day 21 right now. Uh, there are four Extinction Rebellion members who have uh, vowed to remain on Honda's right until all political party leaders agree to meet them and pledge support for uh, what is their climate and ecological emergency bill. It's known as the Three Demands Bill, and it would require the any future Prime Minister to declare a uh, climate emergency, to commit to zero emissions by 2025, and to establish a citizens' assembly to deal with these issues. So, 
Well, that's uh, it's an interesting set of demands um, that uh, we see from Extinction Rebellion there. The idea of using deliberative polling to solve a problem seems a strange one, uh, but uh, it's very hard to disagree with the desperate need for immediate and drastic emission cuts. Unfortunately, that's all the time we have for... Um, uh, this part of the program. I want to thank you very much for coming on, and I'm hoping that um, uh, after the election, unless we see a majority government, there'll be lots to talk about with a hung parliament, and perhaps we can come back then. That, that sounds great. All right. Thank you, Malcolm. That was uh, Malcolm Colclew and Anthony Dunn uh, giving us uh, both a worm's eye view and a bird's eye view from uh, Battersea in London. Be interested in seeing the returns today. Uh, thanks very much for joining us on the Monday edition of After Nine. Uh, we'll see you next week.